Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, where, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Hello and welcome to the Doing Time show. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855am on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. This is Marissa and I'll be taking you through until 5 o'clock this evening. Today on the show we've got two really special guests. The first one is Dr Helen Cobet and she's made an exceptional contribution to international law and transitional justice through her work in Indigenous rights and educational institutions in Australia and abroad. And I'm hoping that I can talk to Helen today about Aboriginal deaths in custody, building the movement to stop Aboriginal deaths in custody and I'd like to talk to her about her personal story and discuss with her um, her work over the years because she's done some, some wonderful um, contributions. And then after that, we're going to be speaking with Latoya Rule, who is the sister of Wayne Fellow Morrison. We've done some extensive interviews with Latoya over the months. And as um, listeners are aware, uh, Wayne Fellow Morrison died in custody in an Adelaide prison. Adelaide prison guards refused to answer questions on Aboriginal death in custody. And NITV has also done some great work on this. All of the prison guards who were present when Wayne Fellow Morrison became unresponsive in a prison van in 2016 refused to answer questions at the inquest into his death for fear of self-incrimination, a court has heard. So we'll be speaking with... Latoya about those key points and looking at what happened with her brother, looking at what happened with the inquest and getting an update because we did speak to her um, a couple of weeks ago. Wayne Fellow Morrison died after being pulled from a prison transport in 2016. So pretty soon we're going to be speaking with Helen and let me just um, introduce her properly before we do that. So in 2019, Curtin University awarded Helen an honorary doctorate for her foundational role in the campaign to end black deaths in custody and in the international human rights movement for Indigenous peoples. Helen grew up in Calvin, and forgive me, Helen, if I pronounce this wrong, where her activism was ignored by the fallout from nuclear bomb testing that poisoned her community. She moved to Sydney where she campaigned, returned and completed an honours um, dissertation on the changing role of Aboriginal women since colonisation. And in 1984, Helen became Director of Studies at 
Cranby Aboriginal Cooperative College, where she enables students to see themselves within an international community. And she's found, found sponsorship and took students to meet Indigenous peoples as far away as Canada. And through this and other roles, Helen has mentored a generation of high achievers who continue to make their mark around the world today. And she played an important role also in instigating the Royal, the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody in 1987. And the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody is extremely important, um, even though it is important to have um, abolition eventually, um, we need to actually we need this this document to hold police to account. And the following year, Helen became executive officer of the Aboriginal Legal Service of Western Australia. So let's talk more about her work shortly. It's approximately four o five, and don't forget too that the station appeal um, is still going on at three CR, and that we desperately need donations, even though. It is still the pandemic and, and lockdown as well. And we'll speak to Helen soon. I really am not understanding why people aren't seeing the fact that prisons are an integral part of a public health response to a pandemic. Like you, I'm really concerned about whether the data is being released very honestly about illnesses within prison. I have suspicions it's not, but really we need very strong leadership in this country that actually cares about people inside, our most vulnerable populations inside. That's what we need and that's not what we're getting right now. Tricia, your station in struggle and solidarity. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. And you're back with the Doing Time show. Hello, Helen. Welcome to the program. Hello. Hello to all the listeners. Thank you for having me on the program. And Helen, your um, what? How, how do I say this? How do you want to be um, addressed in the interview? Is it Auntie Helen, or Doctor Helen, or both? Auntie's good. Yeah, Auntie is good, isn't it? I don't know. That was my first instinct. It's so lovely to have you. And I, I'm wondering, Auntie, if if you could just um, talk about. What land you're from, first of all? From my mother's side, we are part of the Yaru people. And my father's side is down Busselton Way, Yungar people, the Wandaldi people. And so we're one of the seven main landowning groups in the southwest and part of the single United Nation claim. But my, I was born and raised as a youngster in Carnarvon, but we got washed out of the town, one of the big cyclones in the early 1960s. And... Then we came down to Perth where we did our 
formal secondary education. And later, after I got married, my husband wanted to go to Sydney to live. So I did my undergraduate and postgraduate work at New South Wales Uni in Sydney. That's that's great. And and Helen, how did you tell me tell me some of the tell us some of the work that you've done in into so there there really is a great need still, isn't there, to build the movement to stop Aboriginal deaths in custody. Can you talk about some of that? It's a big topic, but my my main issues in the beginning was looking at nuclear disarmament. Because as you're saying in my introduction, we were nuclear sprayed with the atomic bombs that went off in Montebello. And similar to the nuclear bomb testing at Maralinga, the officials had advice not to push the button because the weather conditions had changed. But regardless, they went ahead and areas that were in the original plan not affected became affected. And just through local knowledge of my own family and the community, there was too many of us who were born in the same year when the the nuclear bomb testing was done, that now today we have cancer-related diseases and people have been dying all too frequently. And that's for both First Nations community and just the general Carnarvon population. But as some people might know with Carnarvon, there's also up to 100 or more plantations that are there, and Carnarvon is considered as a food bowl area for the southern area of the state. And when there's cyclone floods and damages to crops on the east coast, like Coffs Harbour, our food is then transported over to that side of the country. And then when we're in the floods, food from over there gets transported to the west coast. So Carnarvon plays a crucial role in the deep south west of WA and the east coast of Australia. But there's a, a lot of chemicals and things that are used in those plantations that eventually get poured into the Gascoigne River. One of my future projects I'm interested in is to study the the health of the Gascoigne River from its beginning right down to Gordon Town, or what we call Carnarvon, Gwinyardu, because along the way you've got a lot of mining tailings that pass into that river system. 
come down through Carnarvon and then the river delta that opens up into the Indian Ocean and spreads out over into the southern Indian Ocean. Yeah. And I was in Carnarvon one a few years back for family funeral and for the first time I saw I was at the market and I found some community members standing up there and protesting about the fluoride that was in the water. They wanted the Shy Council to stop using it and they had graphic images of the dental health of townspeople and which were quite horrific to look at, but it really made the point that something was deeply wrong with the river system. And I think, well, if that's happening to those fellows, it must be happening within my own community as well. So I signed a petition supporting what the group wanted, but... I only go home when there's a funeral. So, Auntie Helen, you you were involved with the you you were actually at the nuclear testing when it happened. I was born in those years. Yes, those overlapping years. And would you say that that actually sparked your your work? That that it actually. got you to to have a passion? Because that's really genocide, isn't it, of Aboriginal people? Yeah, I shared a flat with a well-known Aboriginal activist in Perth and that late Gloria Brennan, rest of the peace, and she's... Her family came from Desert Way. She was a long-dyed woman. And she died some years ago now, but... Yes. She always insisted that her death was related to being nuclear sprayed yep. for Maralinga. And it's still going on. It's still going on now, isn't it, Auntie? All the dumping of nuclear waste and testing. Yeah, I read the the very thick report on Maralinga and what took place, and I was watching a Four Corners program not so long, so even though they say they've cleaned up, there hasn't been really a, a major consideration of cleaning up and looking at the after-effects of the bomb testings. Yeah. And I have no proof, but I've just heard it through networks that the tailings from the that nuclear area in Maralinga are spread along some of the tracks leading from the Perth Casino into the city. Yeah, and there's quite a few high-rise buildings along that track. And so I don't know if people are sitting in the trains, you know, every day to and from work, realising that they're actually travelling on nuclear tailings. Yeah. 
there's there's a lot there, and I'm not sure if, if you're aware, but there's a Friends of the Earth here in um, in Melbourne, and there's an anti-nuclear um, campaign going on, and it's all over Australia. So that there's still a lot of work happening with that. So, Auntie Helen, could you talk a little bit about your international work and, and how apparently you were involved, and, and I want to see if this is true, I mean, I'm sure it is true, um, in, in helping to look at the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody to create that. Is that right? Yeah. Well, um, why I was just talking about the nuclear... Yeah, yeah. Campaign, yeah, sure. because the the two are interlinked of how... Interlinked, absolutely. As, as I was working in the local area, then the state level and the national level and the international level. Yeah. But... Um, when I was at doing my undergraduate work in New South Wales... I would come home for the semester breaks and I would do volunteer work at the Aboriginal Legal Service. Yes. And I was a, a trained stenographer and what happened was our legal staff would go out to country areas and come back with paperwork, and on one occasion we had to revise 200 cases, the paperwork for them, because the judge wouldn't accept the type of paper that we were mm. typing on, and said the paper was too thin and didn't fit the court specifications to receiving documents. And so the lawyers were all operating with tape recorders and they would come back from the bush, dust off the dust, pile up all the tape recorders and distribute between the typing pool. And so for a full week, we would get the voices of our mob telling their stories to make appeals for the judgments that they received from the JPs in the various towns. And much later when I was involved with ALS, I became involved in trying to dissolve the JP system. So the JP system was just um, prominent business people in local towns who were more concerned about law and order issues and economics in the town and they were always giving our mob the stiffer end of the sentences. Yeah. And, you know, like I can remember a young boy received a stolen packet of twisties or something and he got a six months jail for it. So we would have to retype all these cases but it made a big mental impression in me because I was hearing the stories for the first time of 
people that were living in different living situations to what I was raised in. I mean, Carnarvon is described as a rural, remote town. Yes. But because the ALS is a state organisation, was getting stories firsthand from people, young guys, the Amajis, one guys, and it was really opening my eyes up and politicising me, and I became really full of knowledge yeah. about the state, you know, and what was going on. So it is interlinked then, how, Auntie, but... You know, yeah. the, the nuclear testing, isn't it, with, with yeah. the death and then I was lucky that I had a couple of young lawyers who were fresh out of university and wanted to do things. And one in particular would take me with him into the court system when he would have to represent somebody. Or he'd take me into the prison to meet with the clients. And so I got to see the full range of activities and duties that the ALS was involved in. And I really love that. While we were deemed as just secretaries, where we would try to be in a corner and locked away and nobody saw us, these young, new, fresh lawyers took me around to see and said, oh, you know, you lot are just as important as yes. up turning, turning up to courts and yep. seeing inmates. And so I got a lot of more education just going with trips that Absolutely. way. And so that helped me in saying that when there's a complaint you know where to direct the complaint to. Yes. You know, what court system, how you can frame frame your your words to fit particular yes. legislation and the mandates of the court. So it was an excellent teaching method for me. For sure. And you did do quite a bit of lecturing, didn't you, over the years? Yeah, I taught about in just about almost every university in Australia, probably with the exception of Tasmania and maybe Adelaide. Good on you. During those early days. And you were involved Um, also um, to do with the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People isn't it? Yeah, now, when I was in Sydney, the Hiroshima Day rally became very famous. Yep. And you'd get, you know, 500,000 people going to these gatherings. And I would arrange to have an an Aboriginal delegation to go to these conferences. Sorry, these street marches and then get our mob to give speeches at the end of the rallies. And so through that work, I learned how to work in with other like-minded organisations 
to strengthen the individual messages of the different groups. And also in Sydney, we had what they called the Liberation Committee, which was made up of 20-plus organisations where we all met on a regular basis. We learned from each other what was the individual and the common threats to our campaign, and we all supported each other's you know, in the fundraising and spreading the message. So there was no competition going on. No, of course not. Between no, these, no, no. these groups. Everybody was there to, to talk about the protection of human rights. And there was nothing like whether it's black rights or white rights, it was everybody's rights. Annie Helen, that's that's the best thing I've heard all year, to be honest. That's the best thing I've heard all year. And I think that listeners do need to, to be aware, and Auntie, I, I need to tell listeners this, that she can, her Auntie continued to lobby the Australian government to join the declaration, which it did in 2009. Now, Helen, it's approximately 4.26, and I've got to move on to Latoya Rule, who's going to be talking about her brother who died in custody, but thank you so much for talking about the nuclear testing because that is a very, very important topic and we're going to keep um, talking about that at 3CR. OK, thanks. Now, because I was involved in the nuclear business, they had their first international nuclear conference in Melbourne and I went like went along to that, and I was invited to speak. So I took up the, that opportunity, gave a speech. There was a woman sitting in the audience listening to me, and she had a letter from a friend in England and said, can you give me the name of an Indigenous woman to come to the fourth END conference, which was the European Nuclear Disarmament Conference? And so... After I spoke, I got this letter. This woman came to Tramby where I was working and said, we want to offer you to come to England. Where will you be at this time of the year? I said, well, it's semester break for the college. You know, they said, well, they said, can you get to Europe? I said, yeah, I've got money to go to Europe. Well, when you go to Europe and you go up to Coventry where they're having this conference, international conference, can you come back to London and we'll pay for you to make a side trip to go to Switzerland to talk to the UN? And I said, OK, so since 1967, I've been making this side trip to Geneva to annually report on Indigenous deaths in custody. And that was the first time that the world heard about our mob dying in custody. And we would take tons and tons of literature down there, and every time there was a UN meeting, there'd be several workshops at the same time, 
I would go to the second hand shop, put all these little leaflets we had in those suitcases, drag them across oceans and seas and you know, on planes while I was carrying my baby with me and drop them off to every single UN working group meeting. And so there's literally thousands of pamphlets handed out everywhere. And people from the other groups would come and seek me out and have conversations. And so the word just spread and each year we kept going back and giving more reports. Then all the European fundraisers, they would be paying for my fare to go over and I would give them annual reports. So they kept funding us over because they knew what work we were doing and they supported it. So finances wasn't as hard as what people thought. It was just linking in with those international groups where you'd have more opportunities than you would asking government agencies in Australia here, you know, to fund you to get you there. I'm so glad that you mentioned that because now listeners really understand about the international focus of the work that you were doing and the very important contribution that's been made. Auntie Helen, would you be happy to come on back onto our show in a couple of weeks? Or not? Are you delighted? Sorry? I'd be delighted. Yeah, because I'd really like to talk to you a bit more. I I reckon we've only just... I mean, it's good what what we've talked about and very effective, but I'd like to have you back um, in in about two weeks' time and we can do another another extended interview. Could you arrange that? Yeah, I mean, I'm here. I'm here. I'm... I'm in a nursing home at the moment. Yes. So I'm not moving around, but I'm be willing to do as many interviews as you like. Oh, thank you, Auntie. I, I, I'm I'm so happy. Thank you very much for for coming onto the show. We're going to be speaking with Latoya now, who's going to talk about her brother and the inquest. So. We will chat to you very, very soon in, in, in the next couple of weeks and we'll talk more about your work. Okay. You take care. And thank you. And to all the listeners, take care yourselves. Be safe. Absolutely. Very important. And take care of yourselves and your community. And your family, because family is very important. Uh, and even a reminder for the boys inside, I have quite a few number of nephews and that who call me up on a regular basis and give me, tell me what's going on and if there's somebody at risk. And they say, can you help? We need something. And so... I find a connection for the responsible groups that are working on the issue that the young fellows need in, in the prison. Overnight we get things done and the people are taken out of isolation and 
work in the work and move around in the general prison population and they're no longer young people at risk. So yeah. it's important too for oh, groups to work with our boys and young women inside to get them to take care of each other and call out for help because help is there. That's and exactly as a right. We have to organise ourselves to you know, keep it a practice of out of sight, out of mind. We have to stay focused on our young fellows inside. Definitely. All right, Helen. Auntie Helen, we'll talk to you very, very soon. Take care. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434-136-501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434-136-501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. Doing Time show, and we just spoke with Auntie Helen Corbett about her work with building the movement to stop Aboriginal deaths in custody and listening to her story in regards to um, being born around the time of the nuclear testing at Maralinga. And next up, we've got Latoya Rule, who is the sister of Wayne Fella Morrison. And we're going to be hearing an update from her about what's happening with the inquest and the nonsense that's been going on to try to to block the inquest. Hello, Latoya. Welcome to the program. Hi. Thanks for having me once again. <laughs> Lovely to have you. So, yeah, tell us, Latoya, what's what's been happening with the inquest now? It must be very exhausting. It is exhausting, as you know. You know, we've we've spoken so much um, over the last few years, and at the moment, though, we've got a little bit of good news um, good. in that we will be going back to the coroner's court um, on the third of August. So that's in about five or six weeks. And essentially, we've been told um, that the corrections officers, the seven in the van who are responsible for the restraint of my brother Wayne Fella Morrison uh, will be having to be present, so they have to show up. Um, but unfortunately, in some in some respects, the information that they uh, are being made to provide um, is subject to, I guess, um, criminal... How do I explain it? Subject to, um, to be questioned in itself 
whether or not they would have to ask individual questions. So essentially, if they're asked a question by a lawyer, they have the right to say, due to the right that I have as a correctional officer against self-incrimination, I'd like to, you know, discuss the question that's being asked. So essentially, it may be a very lengthy process. Um, It sounds really lengthy, doesn't it? Because apparently, from what I can gather, LaToya, in the court recently, that Miss Bashir, is that her name, Miss Bashir? Jane Bashir, yep. Yeah, Bashir, obviously couldn't compel the guards to answer questions, but also denied the guards' bids to have her thrown off the inquest. That's correct, yeah. So she's she's thankfully remaining on our inquest, um, yep. and and yeah, that's a really positive thing that we get to remain with the same evidence as well that's been given so far. Um, but yeah, we now have to, you know, question by question, really tease out what we'll be asking, rather what our lawyers will be asking of the corrections officers. It's pretty. I'm gravely concerned about this Latoya that really. This inquest has so much been delayed because the guards don't appear to want to answer questions and yet you've even got some um, CTV footage that's missing as well. There's three minutes that's unaccounted for, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, the only footage we've got is up to the moment that Wayne's put in the van. The footage I've seen personally that um, after the fact that I don't, think is necessary to show everybody, just given the nature of the condition of Wayne, um, is essentially Wayne being brought out from the van, unconscious, and I guess, yeah, corrections officers standing around looking at Wayne, multiple corrections officers, and then one person or two people working on Wayne eventually, um, which was a really slow process. So he wasn't actually given attention in, in terms of resuscitation immediately, Um you know, issues like that uh, are really important to tease out as well. But what actually happened in the van for those three minutes, we may never know. And that's just heartbreaking. Yeah. But I guess we've had to, and we'll have to come to kind of some kind of peace within ourselves of what that means for us. And also for Wayne's daughter, my niece. Yeah. I mean, when did this take place, this last um, court date, Latoya? Um, that was just in the start of this year, if I can remember. Probably That's right, March. of course. Yeah, February or March. So since so we have then, been waiting a few months. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So since then, has there there's been a date set for the third of August? Yeah, essentially that date was only set last week. Last uh, week. Well, finalised last week. Yep. It's yeah, really, so. um, yeah. That's that's good news. Yeah, yeah, it is good news moving forward because, of course, now we can organise. We'll be doing, um, you know, up up to this date, we haven't actually fundraised at all for my brother's case simply because we never really knew if those seven were going to go on. We've never really done a big call at it except for the Supreme Court for people to come and support us just because of the lengthiness of the whole, you know, the whole case, which has been ongoing for over a year now. So to ask people to attend and support us um, I just didn't want to do that too early on. Um, I wanted to make sure that there was a really kind of prominent moment 
And I think the prominent moment is when these seven officers are going to go on because they should have to face us. If they want to sit there and they want to say, we do not recall or, you know, mm. I'm not going to answer this during due to the issue of self-incrimination, then they can say that to my family, they can say that to our entire community who will be there on the day. Absolutely. You know, they, they have to man up. They have to, yeah. Um, they, they have to actually be somewhat accountable, at least to see us. You know, and, and rem remembering that up to this point, they've tried not to even have to show up to show their faces, to physically be present. Um, so the fact that they've lost the case to actually stay at home and <laughs> in, in the luxury yeah. of their home and not, you know, provide the evidence of them, their existence, I guess, to our family, um, that's, a, that's a small win. And, I mean, it's sad and, you know, it's nothing to celebrate, but it mm. I guess, yeah. We've fought for this. We have put pressure on them for this. And um, it's ethically immoral for them to do otherwise. So, you know, I am somewhat happy that this has been the outcome so far. But, of course, there's miles and miles to go. I mean, it, what, what... I know I've said this before, LaToya, mm. but what I find really infuriating and, and rather interesting is the way that, that, that the guards are not wanting to answer questions and they're doing everything they can to discredit Ms. Bashir. Yeah. Yeah, literally. Now, Jane Bashir is obviously a coroner who has been, um, you know, part of other inquests, Part of part of other um, big cases, including Aboriginal people here in South Australia, particularly. So it's not as though these lawyers and and Coroner Jane Bashir haven't actually been in the same room in the past and haven't actually worked on cases together, or rather, at least worked on the same cases for different parties. Um, but in saying that. It, there's no reason for them to, I guess, remove Jane Bashir either. She's not done anything that we're upset about. She's not um, spoken out against them. I mean, she hasn't even said that she'll be, you know, looking to to provide recommendations that pertain to the criminalisation of the corrections officers. She hasn't actually stated that. In fact, she's said the opposite of that. She actually can't make recommendations that pertain to a criminal court. It's a coroner's inquest. It's, it's a fact. It's supposed to be a fact-finding, truth-finding inquest. Um, that shouldn't be threatening if nobody's done the wrong thing, or even if they have. That shouldn't be threatening to be asked. But clearly, it's it's a threat to corrections, and they feel intimidated by a woman and families of Aboriginal people. Um, and that's the issue of race here in SA more widely. And of course. Last week we saw, you know, an Aboriginal man, 28 years old, Noel Henry, being bashed by South Australia Police. Um, and now we've seen the head of South Australia Police here in SA say that South Australia doesn't have an issue of systemic racism or brutality. That obviously translates over into corrections as well as police, um, more widely with the government around how we, around, sorry, how they police um, and surveillance Aboriginal people. 
So that's kind of the discourse and the messages coming from South Australia. It's one of the most racist places, and I guess I'm biased because I grew up here, okay. but I just, I just don't... I don't have um, hope in institutional transformation here without, I guess, the accountability of these officers having to show up and actually speak for what they've done. Because already if the government themselves and the head of corrections and police are saying that South Australia doesn't have an issue, well, that translates to our case very clearly in saying that these correctional officers also don't have an issue with Aboriginal people. And that's just not true from what we know, from what we hear happens here um, in, in places of incarceration. Indeed, and Aboriginal people are overrepresented in, in the prison system and they're overrepresented in courts and in police holding cells. That's right. I mean, South Australia itself was the largest um, incarcerator of Aboriginal people in the last quarter since December. So they've gone up 6%. 170 people in the last three months, sorry, between December and 2020, March. Um, you know, that, that's... Uh, we're a leader in incarceration of Aboriginal people here in South Australia, and yet they're saying they don't have an issue with systemic racism. Nobody else... And who was this young man race. that was, that was beat, beaten up by the police? That was Noel Henry, a 28-year-old man who was um, beaten by the police in Kilburn who went viral across the media, his initial charge was resisting arrest. He has no charges right now at all of the reason why he was arrested in the first place. And the only thing he was doing was riding his bike. He suspected himself that he was being pulled over because he didn't wear a helmet and didn't have a light on his bike. Oh, yes, his I remember this. Yeah. You know? And then there's multiple officers with their knee to his neck with their knees on his body, pushing on him while his neck is just twisted in such a horrific way. And he has, you know, he had just bruises and cuts on his arms and his face and his legs. Just, yeah, it's just really vile and really scary. And I just don't know where protection lies here anymore for Aboriginal people. I really don't. And it just makes me so afraid. Thankfully, he didn't die in custody, you know. That. Thankfully, there were Aboriginal people there with video cameras protecting him, trying their best to protect him, but they were pepper-sprayed for calling out to say, stop hurting Noel Henry, stop restraining him that way. Just, you know, he could have been stood up. He could have been taken very nicely with respect, like other people. But unfortunately, he was beaten and bruised and put in a cell without any medical care and any legal assistance. And this is an ongoing pattern. This is an ongoing pattern with Aboriginal people and indeed, you know, black people in America as well. Absolutely. It's not far from George Floyd. I mean, you know, I spoke to Noel Henry and I asked him what was happening during the time that he yep. was being restrained. And just as George Floyd said, I can't breathe, Noel Henry was telling them he couldn't breathe, just to stand him up. He said, Latoya, if I was restrained, you know, if they asked me to put my arms behind my back, I would have. You know? And, I mean, this is a person who literally doesn't have any charge for why he's arrested, saying, if they had just restrained me adequately, 
I would have been okay. I wouldn't have been in here. I wouldn't have, you know, been across the news. Um, not, you know, they had no reason to restrain me. I mean, they didn't. But you know what I mean? It's yeah. so normalised that we're literally saying, as Aboriginal people, we know how to be restrained better than what the police are restraining us with and how they're restraining us. I mean, we know how to restrain ourselves. Isn't that a disgusting kind of messed up thought that we should be saying to the police, hey, if you had done it this way, I might be okay. The victim, the victim is saying, if you put my arms like this and if you, you know, put me in the car like this or if you asked me these questions and de-escalated the situation, I might have been okay. It's quite vile, actually. That that it's vile that Aboriginal people um, are in are in effect training the cops. Mm. They should know how to do these things. They shouldn't be mm. apprehending them in the first place, anyway. Not at all. Not at all. Aboriginal people should not be in custody. So that's what I'm saying. Our communities know yes. how to safely go about. Um, Correct. You know, restraining someone, for instance. Our That's communities right. have knowledge based on lived experience ourselves of how we would want to be treated, how to de-escalate, how to respect, how to love and care, how to, you know, manage situations more than the police themselves who are being paid thousands of dollars to literally bash and brutalise Aboriginal people across Australia. Across the world, yep, um, it's not right at all. Victims of police brutality should not be the educators on how not to be brutalised. We should not be doing the work, and yet they still also aren't listening to us despite our lived experience. Um, and then, in fact, you know what? The police and prison officers here are about to actually go on a panel in a few days, if not tomorrow, I think, and speak about systemic racism and police brutality and Black Lives Matter. After, you know, spreading those comments, they're getting the airtime, they're getting the platform alongside the CEO of Aboriginal Legal Rights and um, at the, the head of Aboriginal... Um, uh, the youth, uh, children and youth um, in the state government the Aboriginal yep. lead on that. I mean, that's the kind of reward that they get for brutality against Aboriginal people, to have the mic over our families, over Aboriginal people with lived experience. Um, nobody wants to listen to us, you know, and that's the message yep. that it sends. Yeah, well, I'm glad we talked about this because it's all interrelated, Latoya, isn't it? So it's all linked Absolutely. Right across Australia, this isn't an independent voice. This isn't an independent story. This is happening everywhere. The silencing continually, which is why I say, while I'm not going to celebrate these corrections officers coming to see us, to actually have to face us, the fact is, is that moment there is so important to yes, our journey because it's a moment that other families haven't even got. You know, That's and the exactly fact that, right. that that little thing, I have to say that, look, we are privileged in some sense in that way as Aboriginal people. 
not on a level playing field, no, no. but that we are at least have that because other families have not had that, and that's what's sad. So, so basically, the the inquest just so, just to summarise it all, so that in case listeners have just tuned in. So the inquest was put on hold because 18 prison guards and a nurse asked the Supreme Court to determine whether Miss Bashir had the power to force them to give evidence at the inquest, which is absurd because really she wasn't forcing anyone to do anything. They just, had to, they just don't want to answer questions. That's correct. And now that's, that's, that's all been... There's no more delays and the, the 3rd of August inquest date will proceed? That's correct. It will proceed for four weeks initially and maybe a few weeks in September to see how we go. And truly, God knows when the report will be out to my family and community. God knows. Um, and what happens after that. But you know what? It will be a very fine day when I get to see all of our community down there um, on the 3rd of August or from that from that point on. And, just, and whereabouts is the inquest? Um, can you tell us details of, of where it's going to be held? That's the 3rd of August? Yeah, we, we don't actually know yet, unfortunately. Not yet? Because okay. um, they're trying to find a courtroom that will hold us. Goodness um, gracious. Which is really good that they're doing that, though. Yeah. Because, obviously, we want as many people in there as we can. Um, but it will be on the 3rd of August, mostly in the morning. I'm going to be putting out an event page soon on Facebook if everybody wants to follow. It would likely be with the banner of Justice for Fella, so look out for that one. We'll also be doing a fundraiser for Justice for Fella, so please keep your eyes on that as well. Um, we'll be, you know, distributing T-shirts and all the rest, just trying to get the message out. And we'll have some excellent people coming over from interstate who are going to be supporting us as long as borders open up, of course, with covid Oh, yes, COVID. Um, yeah, we do hope to have as much as support as we can because it's been, you know, almost four years. September 26th this year will be the four-year mark since Wayne died. Mm. Um, and we're only just now hearing from some of the corrections officers in the van. So, yeah, we really need everybody's support. Um, yeah. Finally, and they still have to give evidence. I mean, they oh, can't be yeah, forced to answer. They still have to give evidence. Yeah. I mean, media reports said that Bashir couldn't compel anybody to no. give evidence. But the fact is, is, the reason they're showing up is to give evidence, isn't it? They the have to. The reason they're showing up is to give a testament of what happened. And if they but don't she's not that, compelling them to answer questions anyway. No. They should be compelled as officers. I mean, what other staff members in the rest of Australia do you think could literally witness a killing and not have oh. to speak about it? It's... Uh, honestly. Anyway, so that's all That's all underway now. Um, Latoya, thank you so much for coming onto the program. We're nearly at the end of it now. But I wanted to do an, an extended interview with you um, to talk about... to talk about Wayne and to... To give listeners the good news, well, not nothing to celebrate, but it is a bit of good news about the 3rd of August inquest. And I want to wish you the very best. Thank you. Thank you so much. I would love to update you during the inquest as well. Please. So that you know what is happening during a live um, talk. So, yeah, it's always I'm great hoping to we talk can connect to you. with you. Yep. Would love that. Thank you so much for the time. 
Thanks a lot, Latoya. Let's talk soon. Take care. Take care. G'day. My name is Margie Thorpe. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 8.55 on your dial. 3CR is your station in solidarity and struggle. We've been with you since 1976 and we are here to stay. Throughout June, we're running a station appeal. We need the financial support of our listeners to stay independent, community-owned and radical. Jump online and give what you can. Go to 3cr.org.au. And you're back with the Doing Time show. And thank you so much to Artie Helen and also to Latoya for coming onto the show today. And we've got Beyond Zero up next. And just to um, update you on, on the, the 3rd of August inquest, and we'll talk about that in the next couple of weeks. Okay, um, goodbye and stay strong and take care of each other. And we're going to go out now with our theme song, Black Fella, White Fella, by the Rumpy Band, and it's Beyond Zero up next day in June. Uh, sorry, <laughs> it's been a long day. Um, tune in every Monday from 4 to 5 for the Doing Time show and donate to the 3CR Appeal. Thanks so much. Bye. It's all the same.